Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. Welcome to another version. I know you're expecting Pastor Steve to be up here today uh, speaking from Matthew chapter 4, but he's feeling a bit under the weather. And so uh, when I heard that, I got stuck on that. <laughs> and so you know what, that hap- what happens when I get stuck on something. That means you're stuck too. You're stuck with me. But no, um, please be praying for Pastor Steve. And there's, there's several others in the body that are, that are sick right now. So just pray that he'll be feeling better. And I also want to say that uh, Sean and I didn't collaborate before um, we started today as far as trying to tie in what the message was going to be between his communion and, and the message here. That's just the way it worked out. So... Believe it or not, today, the topic we're going to talk about is the gospel. What it is and what it isn't. And I shared this uh, with the guys at Men's Breakfast a few weeks ago, but I thought it would seem good to share with the rest of you. And one of the reasons for dialing in this today is because the gospel means many different things to many different people. But its clarity is imperative. Even within evangelical churches, the lines of what the gospel is has become blurred. It becomes blurred very quickly because we want to interject our own knowledge. We want to interject our own understanding of what it is. And we don't want to take the time to study it in God's word. The tendency is to water it down, to make it into elementary terms so people can understand it. And while that isn't altogether wrong, sometimes we also want to make it more pleasing to the ears so it's not so offensive. And depending upon what one's background is, it is seen as a foundational truth for believers. And while for others, it can be an annoyance or a burden, an oppressive message of narrow thinking, There are other writings that took place while these scriptures were being written. They were written around the time the other gospels were taking place, that were being written. There was even one called the Gospel of Judas Iscariot. It was discovered back in the 1970s that claimed to be authentic. A newly restored papyrus document dating back to the second century that portrayed a very different man than what we read in the pages of scripture. Judas was shown as Jesus' best friend and was asked by Jesus himself to betray his identity to fulfill the prophecy and liberate his soul to ascend to heaven. I think we know why that gospel was not included in the canon. And it may seem as though this has quickly morphed into a talk about the authenticity of Scripture, but it it really has. That's kind of true. The gospel isn't just reflected in the four writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it isn't found just in the New Testament. Its message is contained throughout all the pages of Scripture. The Bible is the gospel. And there have been countless books and sermons penned or preached by many godly men over the centuries who have explained it way better than I will today. 
So for me to take a run at it is simply an attempt. But all the same, we can never exhaust its message or overemphasize overemphasize any of it. And while I don't want to spend too much time on it, I also feel it's necessary to identify what has become mainstream perceptions, half-true slogans, and outright heresies that are believed to be the gospel today. You remember that popular book, The Shack, back in the day? It's hard to believe it's already been 15 years since that book was released, but it sold over 22 million copies, and the movie grossed over $100 million. Its focus was the need for God to justify or explain himself to someone who had experienced a tragic set of circumstances in their life. That book brought God down to man's level, demanding God to justify himself for allowing suffering and evil to exist in this world. It was labeled and embraced by many media platforms, including some known Christian networks in their reviews, as a relative depiction of how God works in our lives. To this day, I've not seen the movie, I've not read the book, but I've watched plenty of movie trailers and read plenty of reviews to know I don't want to ever watch or read it. But for the unsuspecting or not so strong believer, its contents have potentially sent uncounted numbers of people into a confusing mess of theology. And if it were looked at as simple entertainment and nothing else, I suppose it would be no worse than taking in any other movie like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or The Wizard of Oz. Stories that contain a main character, someone retaining some sort of omniscient qualities who sees everything that people do and then rewards or withholds benefits depending upon their behavior and their response. Unfortunately, I've yet to run into anyone who has said that the Wizard of Oz has changed their life. I'm glad, I'm glad I haven't heard that yet. I have, and some of you have, heard people acknowledge that that movie wasn't meant to be taken literally. And then in the same conversation, tell how it changed their life. I have, and some of you have probably heard people say how enlightening it was, how its overall message helped them see God's attributes more in the day-to-day, and they understand better how he works in the lives of people. In fact, I just spoke with someone not too long ago, and no, it wasn't anybody here from Hayden Bible Church, so be at ease. But they we're explaining to Leslie and I how God works all things out for their good. And inside I'm thinking, yes, I can't wait to hear what else they're going to say. And then they mentioned an excerpt from The Shack as an example. And I'm thinking, oh no, why? Friends, we can't mingle foundational truths of Scripture with our imagination, even if it's in the context of entertainment or drama and then expect the world to come away with any clear message of the truth, especially if people in the church entertain or take in those mixed elements and then share them as some form of the gospel. And we should expect nothing less from the author of the shack, William Paul Young, 
He is an admitted universalist. He had not so he had not such a good childhood. As an adolescent, he told how he grew up in an evangelical environment. His parents were missionaries. And he was separated from his parents while they went away to the mission field. And he was left in a boarding school at a very young age where he was abused by older students and his parents were never made aware of it. And I don't want to discount what happened to him as insignificant. Those are real and horrible things that he experienced, things that leave lifelong scars. As an adult, though, he went on a journey to try to reconcile all those things in his mind. He tried to figure it all out. He had good questions about the things that happened to him, and he demanded answers from God. The problem came when his answers derived from sources not rooted in the truth of Scripture. Some of Scripture was part of his journey to his healing, but then the Scriptures, being used out of context, became one of the tools he used to prove things that aren't consistent with the rest of the Bible. I kind of uh, came up with... An analogy there. Have you ever tried using a screwdriver to pound a nail? Or a hammer to install a screw? You've done that. I've done that. It's embarrassing. You turn around and you hope nobody's watching. So you do that because it's not going to work. So you try to sink that nail in the handle. With, you try to sink that nail in with the handle of the screwdriver or you didn't bring the right type of driver for the screw, so you start hitting the screw with a hammer. I don't even know if that's a relevant example of where I'm trying to go with this, but this author also began to write other books after a huge success of The Shack. He wrote another book called Lies That We Believe About God. I wanted to share a few of those sam- few samples from that book that he wrote. And remember with scripture in mind, these are things he said were lies. First one he said is, God is in control. And his explanation, quote, God submits rather than control, rather than controls, and joins us in the resulting mess of relationship to participate in co-creating the possibility of life even in the face of death, unquote. Here's another one that he said was a lie. He said it's a lie to say that the cross was God's idea. And this isn't his explanation, it's mine. If the cross wasn't God's idea, then whose idea was it? Was it Pilate's idea? What about the, the crowd that called for his execution? Was it their idea? I'm sure Satan would like to take credit for it. After all, he was the one who twisted the words of God back in the garden and was able to deceive, deceive Adam and Eve. Was it his idea? I don't think so. And I can tell you why from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The cross didn't catch God by surprise. And he didn't leave it up to the Pharisees or the Romans to figure out what his method of execution was going to be. It was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. And I can confidently say the cross was God's idea. Here's another one. He said, it's a lie to say God does not submit. Think about that. His explanation for that is, quote, what is the incarnation? God becoming fully human. If not complete and utter submission to us. What about the cross in which God submits to our anger, rage, and wrath? Unquote. So he references the cross, the very means by which God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.18, he said the cross was used by God to submit to us. That God submitted to our anger, rage, and wrath. Friends, that is twisted. Anger, rage, and wrath are just three of the countless results of the fall. I guarantee you there wasn't any submission on the part of God happening toward us on that cross. The only submission taking place at that time was directed toward the Father on behalf of Christ. And he did that willingly. That submission took place throughout his whole life here on earth. And it was all lived in perfect submission and obedience to the Father, all to his glory. And I have one more. Bear with me here. But this one is like the most heretical one of all that I saw. He said, it's a lie to say you need to get saved. His explanation for that is, quote, the good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and you've been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father, and into his anointing of the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote, and whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. Unquote. Beloved, we can't remove Christ or the cross, which is central to the gospel message, and then replace it with man making us the center. We can't do that. If the gospel is that we are already included into relationship with Christ, regardless of any recognition on our part for that, then there was absolutely no reason for Christ to even come to save us. And the problem is, is there are Bible-believing evangelical Christians who dabble in bits and pieces of all these alternate resources, clamoring to search for the truth, to gain a bit more insight and encouragement from other things because the scriptures just aren't sufficient. They need something more entertaining. It's dangerous for the unassuming believer who's not paying attention to be looking into these other things. And that's not to say that we can't look into anything, but we have to keep things in context. We can't lose sight of the truth of Scripture. So after going through all that, I feel like I need to bathe or something after saying those things. It's horrible. 
But we now have to take a look at what the gospel is. And that's only found in the pages of Scripture. And in order to recognize the false ones and their subtleties. And those subtleties and false gospels are thinly woven into the fabric of the gospel. So we're lured away into a trap. And then finding ourselves caught up in something we find hard to escape. And then we drag others into it with us as well. Why is it so important to define what isn't and what is the gospel? Why is the preservation of the truth of the gospel so important? Because we have not the freedom to tamper with it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the first six verses there. It says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some of your Bibles there use the word trickery or craftiness or deception there in verse 2. But the implication there is that they are, there are people that are using those other methods to lead people astray, and they're doing it with intent. And I can't say why that happens other than the enemy lays that on their heart to do that. They're not exposed to the truth. But Paul could honestly say, the open statement of truth could be commended to everyone's conscience in the sight of God because nothing was hidden. Verse 3 says, Even if the gospel they proclaimed was hidden or veiled, it is because it is falling on the ears of those who are perishing. Those are unbelievers. Verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And while verses like this don't sound fair to us sometimes, we don't have to shy away or apologize for these things because that's what the scripture says. And I'm just the mailman here. I'm just delivering the mail. I didn't put the letter in it. Is everybody okay so far? To steal a phrase from Steve, yeah. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, just like the unbeliever has not the ability to see or understand the gospel without it being unveiled to them by the Holy Spirit, 
The believer has not the ability to know whom the Lord is going to reveal his truth to. That is why we aren't to withhold that gospel from anyone or make assumptions based on appearances that they may not even need to hear it. We don't have to embellish the words. We don't have to make, any, make up any cute slogans or dress it up with sprinkles and cotton candy. We just have to share the truth. So how do we articulate the definition of the one true gospel? The best way to describe it is it's, it's the message. It's the telling of Christ. It's more specifically, it's the good news explaining the life of Christ. Not only his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only what he did and who he was leading up to that cross. It is he who is working and he who is doing. Simply stated, it's the person or the life and work of Jesus Christ. And what he continues to do from the right hand of the Father of the throne of his from the right hand of the throne of his father. That's the most concise explanation I can come up with. The scriptures can be our only source to find the true gospel message. And the gospel message was found in the Old Testament and was pointing forward to that same justification by faith message in the New Testament. Listen to Galatians 3, 7 through 9. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we know mercy, love, faith, and grace are involved. We read these verses in Ephesians chapter 2 often. Starting at verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like I said, we read this section of scripture all the time. And the gospel resulting in salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But we also have to mention that works of self-improvement or positive thinking are of no value. There's a tendency to think people have to clean themselves up before coming to faith in Christ. If I can just quit doing that one thing, then I'll place my faith in him. Then I can say I'm a Christian. And if there's somebody here today, if you're waiting for such a time, thinking you have to clean yourself up before you can come to faith in Christ, please put that out of your mind. We can't clean ourselves up enough for Christ to accept us. It doesn't work that way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gospel message must also include the fact that we're sinners, obviously. We're born into it. 
We didn't become bad as we grew up. We came out of the box that way. But any preaching or sharing of the gospel void of that sin factor is no gospel at all. We must know what we are being saved from and how that sin is taken care of and who took care of it, who atoned for our sin. If there weren't any sin, there's no need for atonement. Anyone making a claim to a regenerated life without repentance is still in sin. Genuine conversion, even though repentance can't be viewed as any satisfaction for our sin before God, that repentance is still necessary. It's not a one-and-done thing. Repentance is an ongoing activity in the life of a believer. It's the fruit of a broken and contrite heart. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a point made in there that's a clear picture of the grace that God bestows on those that are His when it comes to repentance. It says, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Let me say that again. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Even though the power of sin has been broken, praise God for that, right? But its presence still remains and has to be dealt with on a regular basis. And that's done by repentance. And the gospel has to include the blood. We just shared in the Lord's Supper a little bit ago. Any bloodless gospel is no gospel at all. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or cancellation of sin. Christ was our representative, our substitute. And Paul spelled that out plainly in the third chapter of Romans. Romans 3.23 and beyond says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as 2 Corinthians 5.21. But in that process, Christ didn't sin. Christ didn't sin when he became sin for us. If he had sinned, that perfect, sinless, sacrificial requirement would have been negated. It would have been a waste of time. The sinless life that Christ lived here on earth, all of that was done to bring many sons to glory, to the glory of God alone. And it's here we could mention the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth an important element? Because if Christ would have been born ordinarily, he would have been born into sin. He couldn't have been born or conceived by ordinary means. There had to be a distinction between he and us. 
It was a supernatural work done by the Holy Spirit, conceived in the womb of Mary. If he was conceived and born as we are, how could he be truly God and truly man at the same time? He was and is unique. His divine nature was combined with his human nature, that hypostatic union we talk about, into one being. Christ's divine nature is another non-negotiable part of the gospel. And no, Mary wasn't sinless, as some want to claim. We hear the Immaculate Conception, and that's speaking to the heresy that Mary was, prese- was preserved, and she conce- conceived Christ apart from the stain of original sin. The definition of the word virgin doesn't mean perfect. If she were sinless, there was no reason for Christ to die. She could have done it herself. But then she would have had to have been immaculately conceived in the womb of her mom. And so you see how that goes. It keeps going back. In Luke chapter 1, she said, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. But she didn't say, From now on, I will be called perfect. And she also said, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. If she was sinless, why would she need a Savior? Even she, had a need of a, even she had need of a Savior, and it just so happened that her Savior was her Son. Make no mistake, Christ was immaculately conceived. He was fully human and was fully God, but that had nothing to do with a sinless Mary. A good way to say it is, is it was a work of the Holy Spirit. In some way, the Holy Spirit prevented sin from being passed on to Christ through his mother. Therefore, he had to be born of unordinary means, and the power of the gospel is effective in any setting. Christ was reinforcing the gospel to his disciples right up until his ascension, right up till the very end. Christ was sharing the gospel with his disciples. He was explaining it to them. In Luke 24, 44 and beyond, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And here's the key. It's Christ, and then the scripture says, Christ opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We could just share those verses with people, right? When I'm sharing the gospel. And I know you know this, but the resurrection is also a sticking point of the gospel. There are those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. It was misunderstood back in the Bible. And it's still an issue today. People can't get past. There's people out there that believe that we just cease to exist when we die. They claim that Christ was a good teacher, but there's no way that he could have been resurrected. If someone says there is no resurrection of the dead, then there can be no resurrection of Christ. And if that's the case, our faith and testimony is dead. And Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, where it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, 
because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And I like to read the passages, especially in the book of Acts, where we can follow along. It's almost as if we get to have a bird's eye view. We get to sit in on listening to the founders of the gospel, the founders of the church right there at ground zero, listening on them share the gospel. In Acts chapter 3, right after Peter and John healed a lame beggar, Peter begins to share the gospel with the crowd of people. And not only did they just witness the healing of this beggar, they were also the very people who witnessed and approved of the crucifixion of our Lord. And we can read about that in Acts 3, verses 12 through 19. It says, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And all the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Again, that's another passage that talks about what I was talking about either earlier, the people whose minds have been blinded, even though... These people acted out of ignorance. They were still held responsible for their actions. Can you imagine going back to share the gospel with those who cried, crucify him? It's amazing to see Peter go from the aggressive defender of Christ in the garden with his sword to an aggressive defender of the faith with his words in the presence of those who participated in his Savior's death. I know we've all seen stories, news stories from a courtroom scene where there's a family that um, has the opportunity to speak to someone who's been convicted for a crime against one of their loved ones. And many times the members of that family spew hatred and disgust toward that person that's about to be sentenced. But we've also seen where a person will express forgiveness for the perpetrator and then have the opportunity to explain what or who 
has given them the ability to forgive that person. Those things don't happen naturally. Something has to have happened in the heart of a person like that who can genuinely say they forgive someone for taking the life of a loved one. Another thing is we should repeat the gospel to ourselves every day. The foundational elements of the gospel must be part of our thinking to retain a proper assessment of our position before a holy God. We should remind ourselves daily that all things have a purpose, that we are called, when and by whom, that we are sanctified and are being sanctified. How? That we are justified. How? That we are glorified and we will be glorified. Wow. Right? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now it would be a daunting task to think that we would have to repeat all of the things that I've just shared with you here today in order to effectively share the gospel with someone. The quantity of everything I've said here isn't the point. It's the quality and accuracy that is of most importance. For example, we believe the Trinity is an essential part of the doctrines that we teach, but it would be ludicrous to expect someone to understand the Trinity and be able to explain it before they could become a believer. It just doesn't work that way. We don't even fully understand the Trinity. But we must understand and be able to proclaim not just what we believe, but why do we believe that? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. A few months ago, Sean and I were down at uh, the Shepherds Conference in California, and Vodi Bakum was there. And he had a quote that he shared in one of his talks there, and it says, quote, We can't have clarity of the gospel when we're ashamed of it. Maybe we feel ashamed of the gospel because of the offensive sound of it. It doesn't sound too loving. Possibly we're silent on the gospel because we don't know how to explain it. Maybe we're ashamed because we're afraid to admit we don't fully understand it ourselves. But no matter what, we need to be encouraged to sharpen our understanding of it and gain confidence in our ability to speak it. Not on our own power, but in the power of God. And we don't want to lose heart. The whole purpose of this here today is being encouragement, to gain encouragement from the word, to be about the business of sharing the gospel. Paul said he was set apart for the gospel in the first verse of the book of Romans. We've received grace through our Lord in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. For the sake of Christ our Lord. So that's our focus. Should be from here today and moving forward to strengthen and encourage one another 
through the concise and accurate proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's a blessing to be a part of your family. And it's a blessing that you've given us the task to share your word with others. And it's a blessing that you've given us your word so we know how to do that. Lord, give us confidence in that. Give us compassion for those around us. Give us the ability to put ourselves in the shoes of those around us who are walking around blindly, who have not been enlightened to your truth yet. But we rely on your Holy Spirit to be the one that does that and just help us to be the mouthpiece. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.